Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 253, recorded on November 20th, 2016. Yes, so just uh, throwing this out there at the beginning, you're going to hear some weird noises over here. Well, we're going through... Heck in a handbasket, aren't we? In these issues. Oh, this is the this is the comic book where I learned how to swear. So you can actually say "hell in a handbasket." It's okay because Kirk says it. <laughs> and really, it is called hell. I mean, we're we're using it to describe a place that's called hell, so we should right. be able to use the word. True. True. There you go. But that's not the noise I'm talking about. I'm talking about the construction going over at the neighbor's house, which. I understand it is being recorded, so <laughs> it does come up a little bit. If you if you Enjoy. listen closely, if you, li- if you listen closely, you can hear it. A little so, hammering, little sawing. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so anyways, yeah, these issues are what I was reading when I first started getting into Star Trek comics. So mm-hmm. they're near and dear to me, and rereading them, they're okay. Well, there's something very shocking happening that I do not want to talk about at all until it happens. Right. But they are serialized, which I like, which I think is where comic books as a medium is is best when when each story goes into the next story. And these three issues definitely illustrate that. So, yeah. Yep. Um, And it's Peter David. Gotta love Peter David. Yep. He's excellent. The artwork by Tom Sutton's pretty good, too. And, and I, the subject matter uh, think it's pretty is good. quite interesting. It is. We it, are dealing with uh, with uh, somewhat religious uh, beliefs here, so uh, that'll be interesting seeing it from a Star Trek point of view. There's uh, definitely some religious stuff going on, which is triggered by um, the reading habits of an alien. <laughs> right. All right, but first we get uh, a little levity, so uh, this next issue... If anybody remembers where 50 ended, the wedding of Bryce and Conum. So. Yes, and we do pick it up in issue 51, which is titled Haunted Honeymoon, which I'm doing the synopsis for. So let's go. June 1988 is the published date. Creative team, scripter Peter David, penciler Tom Sutton, inker Ricardo Vilgran, letterer Tim Harkins, colorist Michelle Wolfman, editor Robert Greenberger, and that's, I think that's pretty much the same people through all three of these. You know, maybe the letters changed out a little bit, but I'm pretty sure most of those people do all three of these issues. So the cover features Kirk at the con looking angry and ready to do something about it. All around him are creepy green faces laughing maniacally. Wavy red text at the bottom states, Hell in a handbasket! which, oddly enough, is the title of the next issue, not this one. Kirk's log tells of all his duties as a captain how much he loves to perform wedding ceremonies, particularly rare weddings, such as the one he just performed between Ensign Konam and Nancy Bryce. That, that quite frankly, becomes an, an event for the entire crew. Nancy throws her bouquet 
at Sulu, who ends up catching it, apparently quite against his wishes. Emres is quite happy over what Chekhov says is a Russian tradition, which means that Sulu will get married next. Sulu leaves embarrassed and stressed out. Emres asks Chekhov why Sulu is acting this way. He declines to enlighten her and just ends up saying, inscrutable. Bearclaw and Kirk meets in the hallway outside the wedding reception, and Kirk makes it clear Bearclaw is disobeying orders yet again and stowing away on the last-minute mission has not changed anything about Kirk kicking him off the ship at the next stop. Bearclaw will leave the Enterprise and hopefully learn how to work with others and follow his captain's orders in his next posting. Bearclaw and McCoy both pass Lieutenant Castile, who is a strange little alien, and he is feeling sick. Both humans tell him he looks terrible. Castile replies, saying, Men to tights do not get sick, but complains about wanting someone to turn life support's temperature setting down. He is feeling ill and overheated. Nancy and Conam retire to the Klingons' quarters for some wedding night antics. The Enterprise rendezvous with a medical ship named the Weinstein to transfer over a load of serum that is bound for a plague-stricken world called Chapin 1. Lieutenant Castillo is inside of his quarters and feeling ill. He's trying to read... Dante's Inferno, but finding it difficult to concentrate on reading. He is the strongest telepath on the ship, but his own mind seems to be closing in on him. He tries to fall asleep. Kirk meets with Spock, Sulu, and Scotty, reinforcing to them that time is of the essence on their current mission of mercy. During the briefing, Kirk sees the heads of the other three men turn into cartoon characters, including Spock, looking like Bloom County's Opus, the Penguin, with a silver helmet on. Kirk is shaken at what he sees. The men turn back to normal as Kirk ends the meeting and walks out shaking his head. Scotty and the others are confused and concerned for the captain. Emres and Sulu meet on a turbolift ride to the bridge. He thinks things are getting too serious between them, and she says she is not getting serious at all, and why not just fool around? Grr. They come out into the bridge with a red alert, klaxons wailing. Mr. Arex reports a huge Saturn-shaped ship in front of them that just appeared. Kirk and Spock arrive. After some on-the-fly assessment of the huge ship before them, Emres reports sensors do not detect anything in front of them. The ship begins to fade to blue and turns into a totally different ship that is coming straight at them. Kirk and Spock begin to think things are not as they appear. Lieutenant Castile wakes from a disturbing dream. The attacking ship disappears. Kirk orders to stand down from Red Alert. Elsewhere in the ship, Castile is walking down a hall, oblivious to all he passes. As he does so, people he passes see strange, disturbing things. Reports start coming into the bridge from all over the ship. People are seeing strange and disturbing things that can't be real, and yet... Kirk calls for security to start a search of whatever is causing these illusions. Even the too-tall, red-shirted Sterno is called out to take point. 
McCoy suggests Lieutenant Castile could be behind this. He is a projective telepath. Meanwhile in engineering, Castile walks by Scotty, who begins seeing monsters appearing and going for the antimatter intermix chamber. Scotty shuts down the antimatter reactor, which cuts all but emergency power to the ship. The security detail was also in engineering when the, the illusion started. They begin firing their phasers set on stun to stop the creatures they see before them. In the process, they end up stunning Mr. Scott. The wild phaser blasts damage part of engineering. Castile is walking in a trance-like state. A security man spots him and follows him into the botanical gardens. The red shirt informs Kirk just before Castile collapses to his knees and screams out in pain like a Vulcan mind-melding with a horda. All over the ship, people are floating in the air, seeing wild, unreal things. On the bridge, Kirk and company pick themselves up and assess what happened. Spock offers his assessment. Lieutenant Castile unleashed some kind of psychic blast. Since he was last reported in the Botanical Gardens, that is likely where the effects are the strongest. Being at the farthest point from the bridge, they are likely least affected by the illusions. Kirk says they must get down there and bring Castile out of it. Spock points out it won't be easy, as he is still projecting illusions. McCoy asks how hard could it be as the bridge totally changes around them into the gateway to hell itself. Next up, hell in a handbasket. See, there you are. That's where they got the cover from. (laughs) Exactly, right. (laughs) Right. Yes, so it was all the build-up to basically tell you, hey, this is how the crew goes to hell. There you go. In a handbasket. In a handbasket. Exactly. So I did like how the turbo lift door elongated. It's now, you know, what, 20 feet tall, something like that. And right. it has written above it, Abandon Hope, all yes. ye who enter here. Exactly. Yes. Ooh, it's going to be scary. <laughs> right. Yeah, so it's um, it's incredibly unlikely. But hey, you know, they're setting it up. The crew gets to go to heck. And see Satan, probably. I imagine. Yeah, that's where he resides. Exactly. So as we'll see in the next issue, um, he actually, uh, Peter David, is basing this off of Dante's Inferno. So, well, right. we'll see. It's kind of interesting how uh, how he melds that story and aspects of that story in with what our heroes see. But that's the next issue. Right. That'll be next issue. Exactly. So I did think it was funny how... Castile organizes his books with the spine facing away from him. Uh-huh. Yes. So that, the, uh... so that we can see it? Yeah. Yeah, that's convenient of him. But Very um, convenient. Yes. But then I was thinking at first, I was like, oh, well, these probably aren't really books. They're just like little computer pads. But it does show him actually flipping through the pages. Oh, yeah. They are books. Yeah, they're real books. Something that we probably will not have in twenty third century. The way things are going, I think you're right. Even now, I mean, well, you don't even buy hard covered books anymore. You go for all the electronic ones, right? I have been, yeah. Yep. And I've got yep. a Kindle. I've got a Kindle book reader. 
I don't use it that often, but I do have it, and I've got some interesting books. Right. I I do find it funny that I I converted because I was when when all that was starting, I was like, I'll never I'll never go that way. I want everything physical media. I exactly. want I want it on the bookshelf. But then I I guess I ran out of bookshelf room. It's <laughs> like uh, well, I'm going to read it on there anyway, so I might as well just uh, you know put it on the phone or whatever so that I right. can read it anywhere. Yeah. That's the handy thing, isn't it? When you can really get your media onto your phone and you could be just in a plane flight, in a, in a, in a doctor's waiting room, whatever. You can just right. pick it up and do it. Standing in line at the DMV is when I first, when I first did it. Yeah. And that was when, I, that was when it, my first aha moment when I was standing in line there and I was just like, you know what? I could, I could maybe read a chapter of that Star Trek book. And I downloaded it and I'm just sitting there thumbing through it on my phone. Pretty cool. Time just passed by. Right. Yeah. So, so Castile is 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 whatever his race has it ever been established outside of the comic books before? I know I've that never. He was in a couple issues earlier, but right. Yeah, wasn't he one of the guys on one of Bear Claw's uh, away missions? Right. Right. When they were trying, to, when they had to fight the androids and stuff, and right. Yeah, no, and they they mentioned that he was a telepath there, but I didn't know he was anything like this. Yeah, pretty powerful. Right. I mean, like almost. I mean, he's getting into Telosian territory. That's pretty powerful. Right. And isn't that kind of dangerous to have a crewman on the ship that could do that? Right. Yeah. Just yeah. Stick him on his own planet and make it the only planet death sentence. No. Ah. Right. Like, like they did with uh, Talos 4. Right, right. Very dangerous. But, I mean, I, I'm sure this is probably where Peter David got the idea of how, a way he could make this happen. You know, from the... Right. Yeah, know, and I want to talk pilot. about it more next issue, but I do think it's funny that um, this came out right when Star Trek The Next Generation is coming out. So, um, I'm... I don't know if he wrote this before he saw the first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, but a lot of these illusions kind of kind of make you think the same thing about how the holodeck works. Ah. Mm-hmm. We're still standing on the bridge, yet now it looks like the turbo lift door is 20 feet tall. Right. Right. If if we all stand on each other's shoulders, would we be able to walk through the, show, the, the turbo lift door without the top guy bumping their head? No, exactly. But right. it looks like you could. Right. So. And the thing about the hollow deck, it was supposed to be a, a, a nice big open thing. So you wouldn't necessarily have to walk through physical things. Although eventually you do have a wall. But. Right. You know, you have walls eventually. So most of the things there, like doors and things like that, are photonic constructs. But this, it's like. And they, they allude to it. Well, in the next issue, they will. How they're going to be going down, oh, I'm going down uh, a ladder, but it seems like I'm just walking down a hill. But right. I know I'm walking down a ladder, you know, so it is pretty weird stuff. Right, yeah, so I just think, I just wonder if he already had it in his head and, and Star Trek The Next Generation just kind of went their way with it, which doesn't really make sense. Or if this was kind of his nod to, hey, this stuff doesn't really make sense, does it? No, you know, but but doing it in a way where he doesn't say we're in the holodeck and it doesn't make sense. He's doing something else, but also right. alluding to 
the same thing that doesn't make sense. No. Which is the same thing we talked about with the Telosians too, right? So just because yeah. you drop Pike's, you know, uh, crippled body, Pike himself is not going to get up and start running around. No. It's an illusion of Pike getting up and yep. running around. Yep. So his body's still sitting there. Exactly. So. But of course, with, in the case of the Telosians, I mean, although they never really made it 100% clear, you maybe aren't moving at all as these illusions are happening to you. So Pike in particular, he could just be sitting there in one spot forever while he's out there with Vina having a great time, you know, at the at the end of the um, Menagerie episode. Right. Um, but if anything that happens, like when they were shooting the the bridge, or not the bridge, the, the door, and it wasn't blowing up, in their mind's eye, it wasn't blowing up, but in reality, it was a giant crater. Um, right. I mean, it doesn't make sense. If you think about it too hard, it's like the end of that Menagerie episode doesn't make a lick of sense. But <laughs> Yeah, but you went with it because it's a story. You want right. to be entertained. And it was a light ending, and you wanted you don't want to see Pike in the little blinking chair forever. No. And that suspended disbelief? Oh, you'll need that here, too, in the next issue. <laughs> you'll need that a lot there. Right. So I know that we don't normally talk about um, advertising mm-hmm. right out of the gate, but I'm going to break that tradition here. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're on page 20 of the book. Mm-hmm. So we see Castile with his hands up to his face screaming, mm-hmm. ah, while you see all this craziness going around um, the the ship mm-hmm. right, with people floating and stuff. And then you look to the right of that panel, because it takes up the whole panel. The the panel takes up the whole page. Look right to the right of that page, and you see an advertisement for Batman the Killing Joke. Mm-hmm. With the Joker's hair hands in his hair, just like Castile's. And here he's laughing, where in Castile's case on the opposite page, he's screaming. Yeah, so but... Do you think they put that advertisement there on purpose? I don't know. Because... It almost looks like the laughing of the Joker bleeds into the picture, so it's like, you know, like a two-page spread of the Joker laughing, but in reality, it's one page of the story and one page is the ad. Eh, yeah. I mean, they're not 100% the same, but no. yeah, they're they're close. Right. Like, uh, Castile has a lot less hair. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not, he doesn't have a smile on that face. No, no, he does not have a smile on that face. And isn't it interesting how he doesn't have a mustache, but the closest thing to a mustache actually comes up and over his nose? I did not notice it until I was looking at this picture just now. Yeah, it's, it really is, hits you in the face in this picture because he is screaming, so his face is kind of elongated a little bit. So you can really see how his upper lip is totally hairless. But he does have a beard. Yeah, no, uh, I didn't notice it. It, it. That's in every page now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I did not know. I just thought he had a beard. Yeah. I didn't notice that it went to his nostrils and not to under his lip. I mean, under his nose. Right. And I, I think it's a cool way to get across the point. This guy's not human. Uh, that and the fact he's got kind of a pointy head. Uh, you know, he, he's he's got some hair on the side, but the top of his head is, is bald. And he's got uh, kind um, not not quite a cone shape head, but kind of towards that. Kind of like kind of like an egg head a little bit. Yeah, like an egg like, head. There you go. Like Vincent Price from uh, the Batman sixty six. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Definitely looking at that beard and the top of his head totally screams. I can 
recreate hell on the Enterprise. <laughs> just <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, anyway, so this issue is really very much a setup issue. So right. I don't really have that many things to say about it. It's just um, important that Kirk continues to finally have – it's the last straw as far as with Bear Claw. So oh, it, yeah. that started before, and they're reinforcing it here where Kirk sees Bear Claw uh, and, and that other girl's there also in the hallway. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, Kirk is saying, sorry, Bearclaw, you're a jerk, and better, ne- better luck next ship. Yeah, I am so. surprised he does that right in front of Sherwood, because Bearclaw acts like he's trying to keep it a secret, and Kirk's like, oh, I'll tell you why he's pissed at me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I fired him, and I'm kicking him off the ship. Yeah. Which, yeah. quite frankly, he should have done that a long time ago. Kirk or Bearclaw? Kirk. Yeah. Well... It- he should have told the senior staff. I don't know how high up the ranks. I don't think she is very high uh, up. She she should she is. I mean, it's just because she's his girlfriend, shouldn't be Kirk's place to go tell everybody. Yeah. Well. No, uh, the, the, the there was two things about the whole wedding that kind of confused me, mm-hmm. or just and this is mainly when I'm a kid, but I also get it here too as an as an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is that the little. Klingon human hybrid type thing. Oh, that guy. Uh, he's almost treated like their their kid. Yeah. Like he, I think flower he's like child the or whatever. ring bearer or something yeah, in the right. movie in the wedding, and he's uh, I don't know. He acts like he's that's their mom and dad now. Yeah. But they said that he's a full blown adult, right? That he's just um, he's not a child. Yeah. So I thought that was odd that they've kind of changed his character from being. This this odd adult to now being a, a, a real kid. Well, I don't know. Th- I don't know. Just because they put him in the in that position, I don't necessarily think that makes him a kid. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Just some of the things he says, you know. But I guess because he is supposed to be young at heart or whatever. But yeah. But he already he knows all the human traditions. Throw the bouquet. Throw the bouquet. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And plus, you never see him after that in this. Do you no, not? In, in I this arc, I, I don't. Do. I don't remember seeing him. But you do see some other weird stuff that I always thought was really odd as a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, keep in mind I was what, like, eleven, ten, something like that oh. when when I read these. So the just married don't open till Christmas. Or which and everybody's standing in front of the door, like, uh, snickering. Yeah. What's? Do you really do that on your wedding night? I was like, uh, so if you get married, then everybody stands in front of your door listening to anything that happens inside there? Yeah. It just seems weird. Well, I, I think the whole way they treated that, that – the whole idea that Konam and Nancy are um, you know, locked away, you know, doing their Consum- thing. Consummating the wedding. Exactly, consummating the wedding. And how it's like, oh, it's such a – such an amazing thing because this never happens before marriage so they're just going to go in there like uh like wildlings and uh and nobody's going to see them for days and it's like i remember like 50s and 60s movies that would treat it like this too and it was like such an old an old stereotype which i personally believe was never real but they just perpetuated it in a lot of movies and TV shows or whatever. Um, there was plenty of hanky-panking going around in the 20s, 40s, 50s. You just never saw it in movies and stuff because there was a 
you know, there were it, standards. Exactly right. That that influenced a lot of things, at least in U.S. movies and TV shows. Anyway, but but this is like a hangover from that. I mean, this was made in the eighties, late eighties. Mm-hmm. Yet they're still doing that same kind of thing. That's the holdovers from the fifties and sixties. You know, I just, I mean, there was a what, what is uh, there was an old movie, uh, like Robert Redford and you know one of his earliest roles with some uh, some starlet or whatever, and they made a big deal about that. He just got married, and then you know you you didn't see him for two days. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, well, good for him. Yes, good for them. However. Right. So that's but what they're doing. It, it, that's what they're doing here, and they continue to do it to the third issue. Anyway, <laughs> right. but that's not the part that gets me. It's the part that it keeps showing that people are just stand in front of the door <laughs> listening. <laughs> several times throughout that is inappropriate. Issue, several times throughout this issue, they keep showing that same door with the "Do not open till Christmas." Yeah, with like two or three guys standing in front of it, snickering, and, and it's even you know, I get. Supposedly, right after the reception, they just go off into the room, and maybe the reception's still going on, and the room is really close to where the reception is. I don't know why these guys are standing there. <laughs> but later in the book, <laughs> later in the book, when Castile's walking around with his migraine or whatever you call it, you see that it's still still happening. People are still listening in as to what's going on. It's, it's quite inappropriate. Very voyeuristic and 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 ooky. Yes. Ookie and inappropriate. <laughs> that was my comment. Uh, I do just want to mention the cover real quick. Uh, you said that uh, you know has Kirk sitting on the uh, you know his bridge throne, hmm. and then like one of the first lines in the book is about a captain's duty, and uh, I, I still think that that cover really looks like he's on a different throne, <laughs> and maybe doing a captain's duty. No. <laughs> Okay, yeah, you're okay. So your comment about that cover, yeah, was he looked constipated <laughs> and uh, really trying to get a bowel movement or something, which I did not quite get, quite frankly. But he was looking stern. That's it's all, just, and determined. And then, the, and then the the fact that the first lines in the story are a captain's his favorite captain's duty, and I'm like, <laughs> the little kid in me is like giggling he said duty <laughs> anyways good point good point all right so you don't have anything else for this one i don't all right so let's go to the next one which is you know by far this one. Oh, um i am going to do this synopsis a little bit different so um so bear with me it may not go as i planned but uh the events in the story do mirror the events in Dante's Inferno, so I am going to make a lot of comparisons to the book versus the show uh, versus the episode. So, the issue. So, uh, just uh, bear with me. That's how I've structured these notes. So, the issue is entitled "Hell in the Hidden Basket." It came out July of 1988, and all the writing and art staff is the same from the previous issue. The cover shows Tim Curry's devil from Legend, the movie with Tom Cruise, and he is standing in space with the Enterprise near his chest, ready to be swept up within his mighty hands. It's actually quite a cool cover. 
So the story starts with the main bridge crew of the Enterprise traveling through the bowels of the ship that to them appears to be Dante's version of the nine circles of hell. Within most of the circles, the crewman finds, or within most of these circles, uh, one crewman or another finds him or her tempted or distracted, and they need the help of another member of the crew to continue forward. So as they're going, they first encounter the first circle, which is called Limbo, which houses all the unbaptized and virtuous pagans. So here, the crew find uh, some Roman warriors, and they have to fight with them with swords. Uh, while most of the crew is fighting with the Romans, the while most of the crew is fighting with the Romans, Spock, Socrates, and others. Spock needs McCoy to remind him of their mission and that none of this is real. The second circle is lust. Those who are letting their appetites sway their reason. When they first enter this circle, they encounter Minos, the dragon, who judges the dead with a swipe of his mighty tail. There's a great joke here where they suspect that this will be Kirk's folly. But it actually turns out to be Mores who is caught up by Minos's tail. And this is obviously um, perhaps due to her lustful nature with Sulu in the last issue about fooling around. Luckily, Sulu saves her by cutting the demon's tail with one of the swords from the previous circle. They journey to the next circle. The third circle is Gluttony. Here they fight Cerebus, the three-headed dog monster from hell. No one is really tempted here, but Spock conveniently knows to throw some mud in the monster's mouth, and they get past. Fourth circle is greed. Here they find Plutus, the demon overseeing the torturing of the souls, including many of the Enterprise crew. McCoy cannot bear seeing this, and he wants to go help, you know, because he's a doctor. He has to help people. But Kirk reminds him that they can't do anything until they get to the source of the illusion. They encounter the fifth circle, Wraith. Here they find a swamp full of people writhing in anger. One of these people pulls himself out of the slime and grabs onto Kirk's leg, trying to pull him in. It is Bearclaw. Not wanting to hurt the man, since they don't know for sure if this is really Bearclaw or just an illusion, the rest of the crew have to pull Kirk away from Bearclaw, and then eventually Bearclaw slips back into the swamp. They then cross the river Styx with the boatmen, and they come across the Furies, consisting of Electo, Megara, and Tisaphone. Tisaphone. I think that's how you say it. They are all calling for their leader, Medusa, who then shows up, and she turns Chekhov into stone when he accidentally looks her into the eye. Mares closes her eyes, and using her keen sense of smell, she's able to get close to Medusa and lops off her head, breaking the spell and turning Chekhov back to human. They enter the sixth circle, which is heresy. Here they just see a few people in cages hanging over fire, and nothing happens, and they just walk through without issue. Seventh circle, violence. Here they encounter a raging bull, 
that they call a minotaur, yet he does not possess any of the human features that I usually accompany uh, or I usually associate with a minotaur. And they also find several centaurs, which are half-human, half-horses. They are able to trick the centaurs into killing the bull with their bows and arrows. Once the bull is dead, they flee to the next circle. The eighth circle is fraud. Again, nothing much happens here, but in the background we can see that the crew do get the ride on the demon Giron. They finally enter the ninth circle, entitled Treachery. When they first enter, they find several of the crewmen and crew women naked and frozen in ice. This really angers Kirk. He is fired up now. Quite literally, because, you know, they're in hell. Finally, they find Lucifer himself. Here he's depicted as a huge monster with three heads, and he's just scooping up people and devouring their souls. He scoops up the crew... He scoops up the crew, and Spock's able to make physical contact with the creature, and he performs a mind meld. Suddenly, the telepath Castile is snapped awake, and all of the illusions stop. Castile is taken to sickbay, and things are returning to normal. Kirk checks in with Bryce to see how she and Conum did during the crisis. But she tells him that they were too busy enjoying the honeymoon to notice that anything was amiss. Later, Bearclaw visits Kirk in his quarters, and Kirk starts to tell the man that perhaps he's changed his mind about Bearclaw's future. However, before he can say too much, Bearclaw pulls out a knife and stabs the captain dead in the chest. <laughs> With Kirk dying, Bearclaw leaves without remorse, only saying, Go to hell, Kirk. And then next up, you're dead. Uh, you're dead, Jim. Do we have to say it? You're dead, Jim. Yes. Oh my gosh! A crewman stabbed Kirk! A crewman! That doesn't happen in Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. What the heck? Nope. Killed him dead. I thought they're all supposed to be evolved and everybody gets along together, you know, on the crew. Right. That's, that's cool. I remember when this happened, and, you know, you have to wait a month to find out what's going to happen next. So I remember, like, thinking about it, like, oh, man, he's he's really dead. <laughs> and then, you know, Next Generation is just starting up, and I'm like, I wonder if they're just going to stop this comic book here when mm-hmm. you kill him off, and then they'll just have a Next Generation comic. Right. Uh, you know, so all these, like, thoughts are going through your head, but but I'm also going around telling people, hey, look, he says you're dead, Jim. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Well, that, as as a younger uh, person reading this, I can just imagine what you might have been thinking, yeah. Because you don't see this kind of thing. I mean, that is violence. That is, that is knife to the chest. Yeah, and it's a pretty long knife. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's about as long as his forearm, and when he puts it into Kirk's chest, I mean, it, it goes down to the hilt. Yeah. So uh it's it, deep. It's dumps some damage and it's right where his heart is, so he should be almost dead immediately. Right. But obviously it didn't it didn't it, it may have cut a vein, but it or an artery, but it didn't it couldn't have gone into his heart. Well, at, right it's now. Pretty close though. It looks like it. I mean, he would have been dead. But I do like that parting line, go to hell, and you're like, "He 
just got back from that. <laughs> you sending him again? Yeah, and this just you – know, so is Bearclaw actually been influenced by this whole mental thing going on? Or is he really the creep? At least I always thought he was. Right. Right, and was he the re- was he really the was Bearclaw really the one that was grabbing Kirk's leg and Kirk kicked him off back into the the swamp? Right. You know? So maybe maybe and if that really was Bearclaw and he really does remember those events, yep. you know, he's like, I was in the swamp, I was trying to get Kirk to help me out, and instead they kind of kicked Kicks me back me in. back in. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of good questions. That uh, that you don't really get the answers to as no. far as his motives here. Yeah, and and, and just period having a murder like this uh, of a main character, two main characters being involved. Well, one main character, one second tier, but still, right. Uh, this is not the kind of stuff you normally see in Star Trek. Right, right. Yeah, it's good. I I, I remember as a kid going, "Oh, this is this is great. This should be a movie." Yeah. Um. So. No, I, I liked it, and you know what? Uh, the next issue, I really like too. The the aftermath of right. of Kirk dying, really. Yeah. Or being near death. Right. So back to ish- this issue, though. What'd you yeah. think of uh, the plagiarism of Dante's Inferno? No, <laughs> it's not plagiarism. <laughs> um, not. No, I. A lot of people have taken uh, Dante and used it. Um, I think it was, uh, David Niven and Jerry Pornell, they did something like this, where they had, uh, a characters of theirs going basically into the, the layers of hell. And they basically like redid, um, Dante's Inferno. So this is not unusual. Uh, lots of people have channeled Dante in 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 new literary works, so um, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was interesting, and at the time I read this, you know, I didn't know what Dante's Inferno was. Mm-hmm. You know, I might have known, you know, of the statue. You know, the, you know, I might have seen the statue Dante's Inferno by uh, uh, what's his name Rodan, right? You know, so I had the term Dante's Inferno was something I was aware of, but I didn't know what the story was. So reading it then, it was just an adventure story and everything was, you know, everything was exciting for me because, uh, you know, it's all new to me. Right. Uh, but reading it now that I know what Dante's Inferno is and, and seeing all the characters that are just in the background, mm-hmm. you know, like like the dragons and the monsters and stuff that right. they never call them by name here in the book. But you know who they are now and it just makes it, you know, every panel just has a nice little nod to the story and you're like right. oh, okay yeah that's when that's when he did that that's when he did you know that's it, exactly. I, I really enjoyed this a lot yeah yeah and they showed people in very bad situations in pain writhing this is not a kitty book no not kitty issue at all which is kind of cool no and what i liked a lot and i wish they would have done it a little bit more is truly have a crew member you know tempted or distracted or something at every level right so have mm-hmm. nine crewmen in your away mission where you really you know here they only had six but why not have nine and have somebody that could technically fall into each one of these 
you know, stages, right? Yeah. And that seemed like what they were starting with. Yeah, but then but I that might that blew through a couple of them. Yeah. Well, did, he started with that, and I thought he was going to keep going with it, Peter David. Mm-hmm. But um, apparently not. Either he couldn't find somebody, <laughs> a crewman for every uh, level, or he just thought it wasn't working after the first two. I don't know. But, right, right. But they did, MRS and, and Spock. And, and so, okay, so the Spock thing, where he's with Socrates and Plato and Euclid. Um, right. And, of course, that was Limbo. But wh- what was it? The si- was it the sin of ego that Spock was getting drawn in on, or what? I mean, because he wasn't even listening to anybody else from the crew. He w- right. wasn't listening to Kirk. He was just like, hey, these are some of the most amazing minds uh, that Earth ever created, and I'm just hanging out with them. Cool. So is that ego, or what? Was or, that that what he was succumbing to? Yeah, see, I don't know. Or it was because it was Limbo, if you want to take it for what Dante's version of Limbo was, which I don't know if anybody really, you know, believes that this is what Limbo is. But, you know, Limbo was supposed to be anybody who was unbaptized. Yeah, or, anybody that wasn't indoctrinated. Or, you know, into... e- even if you were a really good person, if you weren't a Christian yeah. and you weren't baptized, this is where you're at. Yeah, which is kind so, of ridiculous. Yeah, it's beyond ridiculous. And, and, and you know, to my knowledge, no, no major religion believes this now. But you know, this was Dante's take on it. Yeah. But uh, I, I was also thinking, well, you know, Spock maybe is because he he is sinless or whatever, and so he's not going to fall into any of the trappings later on. That mm-hmm. maybe that's why they had him kind of distracted here. Yeah. You know, talking about. You know, maybe his maybe his sin is that he uh, you know puts logic over all all else because that seems to be what he was trying to talk Plato into and so and Socrates into that that all philosophy should be based on logic. Right. So yeah, I don't know. Like I said, they didn't quite fit you know into my what I wanted it to be, which is everybody gets kind of tempted, but but then it did in, at times. So I, I still wonder yeah. if that was the original intent, and it just. He ran out of people or, or whatever. Whatever. And, and McCoy, McCoy's problem is compassion. He was too compassionate. Right. I mean, but compassion isn't a sin. It's a virtue. So it was like he started out like Peter David was starting out trying to do a couple different things. And either he thought it was getting old or it just wasn't fitting and he'd move on to something else. Right. It seemed. But it also could be, I mean – that was the circle of greed, and I'm not saying that McCoy's greedy, but it was kind of greedy for him to put the needs of those few over the needs of everybody. So I mean, oh, maybe, that, that's maybe, a bit of a stretch. It is a stretch. I agree 100. percent But yeah. I'm just wondering if if that's it. If that's if that's what they were what going they're trying for, to say. Yeah. That his uh, his need to his need to help people. You know, to be to help somebody immediately outweighed the uh, the need to, you know, see through the mission to exactly and get Castillo out of yeah maybe. So uh, I, I do think I do think it's very appropriate that Bearclaw was in the River Sticks, you know, right. loaded with, loaded with anger, angry people. Perfect. That's Bearclaw. Right. That was a good match. And I did like how throughout this they kept seeing people that you know they would see. Much more people than are actually on the bri- uh, on the ship, right? There's only 400 and something people on the ship, and right. 
we see much more than that here. But um, I I did like how they are seeing some people from the ship. They're like, hey, that's Ensign so-and-so. And they're even saying, well, we don't know for sure if that is them or if it's just an illusion of them, right? So Mm -hmm. I thought that was good, and that's why I thought the bear claw thing was good is that was it really him or were they just seeing that because they they themselves think that that might be where he should have been? Right. Yeah. Completely. I, don't know, I thought it was good, and it also kind of ties in with Dante's Inferno, who you know he put in all kinds of famous people from the time, and basically told told the readers, "Hey, this is where so and so ended up," right? Know? Because you know of what I think that uh, he did, he or, he or she did wrong uh, while they were here on Earth, right? You know, some historical characters. So again, I, I thought it was great, just a, a nice little uh, mirroring of the the actual play or the uh, novel or it wasn't a poem right it was it was just well they they call it a poem and maybe in its original form it was a poem but the only thing i've ever written or read is more like a normal book right right but i think they called it a poem that's what i that's what i thought too yeah um and by the way it's larry niven i think i said david niven i mentioned before yeah larry niven and jerry pornell because david niven is an actor Oh, he's an actor. Yeah, he's an actor. (laughs) Anyway, I just want to make sure before people started, you know, writing out, you know, navigating to the website and saying, hey, you're an idiot. David Niven's an actor. I just want to make sure to (laughs) correct that myself. Yeah, so another thing, uh, Castile, at the end, McCoy figures out he's a victim of Le Guin's syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was like Le Guin, Le Guin. And then uh, I think there was an Ursula Le Guin, uh, the author of The Lathe of Heaven, I think. Right. So I don't know whether Peter David got that name from, from her or uh, huh. uh, or from the, the author of that novel or not. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I, I didn't look it up, but w- when I saw Lou, I was like, oh, is, is it supposed to be kind of like his version of Lou Gehrig's disease? You know, it's oh, right. something else disease, you know, right. so that – you would have a, you know, you'd already have a, some sort of frame of reference what kind of disease it was. But yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, and you figure if somebody's a powerful telepath, uh, last thing you want to see is some kind of mental degenerative thing. Right, right. Happening. Yep. Now, the, the only thing that I thought was missing from, for it being, you know, a true re reimagining of Dante's Inferno as if there was the Virgil character kind of guiding him through. Oh, But right. I guess Spock almost was that character because he had read the book so many times that he, he knew what was going on. Right. But I guess it was it was not really needed. No. You could probably figure it out well enough as right. you're trying to get through it and down. But see what well, this is I love when, when they do stuff like this where mm-hmm. they introduce something that's everybody's going to get exposed to at some point in their lives. So comic books kind of aim towards kids, kid reads it. And then, you know, later in high school when they're having to actually be exposed to the real Dante's Inferno, mm-hmm. that, that basis is already there. There's already a little bit of grain of knowledge there that right. they may not even know that they know, you know, because I'll be honest, I didn't, at, now that I'm reading it again, I'm like, I never once put 
these two books together because so much time had passed from the time I read this comic to the time I was exposed to Dante's Inferno. Mm -hmm. But I bet when I was reading Dante's Inferno, you know, in high school or whatever, it that basis was kind of somewhere in the back of my mind that I kind of already knew that there's nine levels and that, you know, Satan's at the end. And Right. Um, yeah, but did, did you remember that uh, Satan is actually in an icy place, a cold icy place, as opposed to burning and brimstone and whatever? Well, they don't talk about it, but isn't the ninth level kind of split up into different sub-levels? And one of them is well, ice, and one of them is. Uh, I don't fire. remember that. Yeah, but 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 definitely um, the idea that Lucifer is actually in an icy realm where he is. I I thought that was very surprising, based on like most things. As you're a kid growing up, you, and you you see cultural references, it simplifies everything. Sure. So you always think of uh, Satan being in uh, a burning place, and that's hell, and and not all this variety, and all you know, keeping people with different sins at different levels. Uh, that's kind of interesting. I mean, there's a there's a layer of complexity and sophistication there that mm-hmm. if you didn't read the novel, I mean, if you didn't read uh, the novel, you wouldn't know about that. Right. So I, I I think it's really interesting being exposed to the complexity and the uh, the richness of the story and and the picture uh, that was painted mm-hmm. by Dante. Um, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, no, that's good. such a departure from what you normally get in the uh, Star Trek comics or any comic for that matter. Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah. So I too was kind of freaked out. Hey, that Minotaur is just a big bull. What? No man bits? What's going on? Okay, so uh, it wasn't that was throwing me, me off. All right. Well, I, I've always seen the Minotaur as half man, half bull. I've never right. seen it all bull. Right. So okay. that that was something different. I mean, centaurs looked normal. Right. Um. Although I didn't, I didn't remember centaurs necessarily being in Dante's Inferno. But okay, I guess they must have been. Yeah, I think they are. Because I always thought of centaurs being more like, uh, you know, Greek mythology or, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Well, that's what's that's what I, you know, in high school and stuff when I was exposed yeah. to it. That's what I like so much about Dante's Inferno and um, Paradise Lost. You know, that that, that poem by uh, was John Hilton. No, Milton. 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 Yeah. Um, what I liked about those Milton two, Bradley. <laughs> no, I don't think it's Milton Bradley. Oh, OK. But what I liked about those two stories is that it was a mixture of Greek mythology and Christian mythology, right? Because they had, you know, like the uh, or or Jewish mythology, um, is that you know, like in in Paradise Lost, it had it had Adam and Eve, but then it also had, uh, you know, the um, Pandora and things like that from Greek yeah. mythology. And here in Dante's Inferno, they have Greek mythological characters like Medusa, the mm-hmm. centaur, yep. the minotaur, yep. dragons, these all these things. And then you also have <laughs> the, you know, the judo-christian beliefs of Satan and uh, Lucifer and uh, things like that. So, I, I don't know. Like I said, I, as a kid I liked it because it was just this great well, you know, mixture of all these different religious beliefs. Right. So, but yes, I agree with you. What what these characters are usually uh Greek mythology. Right. And of course, there are many that say the 
Judeo-Christian religion, of course, grew out of the religions that came before it, including Greek mythology to some degree. Right, right. Okay, well, enough of that. Religion 101. That's all I have to say about this one. You got more? Um, the only thing I was going to say was, I think we already talked about where here the characters actually realize the how holodecks and things like this won't really work, right? You can't, you can't really walk down a ladder. Uh huh. Yes. Mm-hmm. But think that you're sliding down a a hillside or something, or go swimming in, you know, go swimming in the river sticks, but in reality, you're what? Swimming in hot Nothing. plasma? I don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, I like how here the, the characters are actually aware that uh, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. No. Uh, the idea that on a holodeck adventure, you would be jumping out of a high-altitude uh, vehicle and plummet towards the ground doing a high-altitude uh, parachuting or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe that happened in Voyager. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, there's some things that make sense possibly in a hollow deck, and there's other things that make no sense at all. That one actually makes more sense to me because it's just you in a room, and they could, if they could make that room feel and, and act like anything, uh-huh. I, I can understand. And big wind machines? And, yeah, exactly. And then or, actually or tra- uh, feel moment, momentum, theoretical yeah. momentum of you uh, heading down at, uh, at incredible speeds? Right. Why not? But, <laughs> okay, so uh, but the but the thing about the transporter, the 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 the, the holodeck that that threw me off, it was season one. Yeah, uh, or actually maybe it was season two. The first time that they had the Moriarty episode, mm-hmm. and that was the first time they showed people go into the the holodeck and then split up. So you had Picard and Pulaski doing one thing, uh-huh. and then miles away, Data and Geordi were doing something else. And I'm like, right. no, they're in the same room. How are they walking away from each other? They're in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. So that was the that was the that was the first time that it really took me out of how does this really work? Exactly. You know? Yeah, I think Quark's use of it on Deep Space Nine made a lot more sense. Although they never really gave you details. Yeah, uh, when you go visit Dabo Girls? The Dabo Girl? The Dabo Girls are at the Dabo tables. Yeah, no. You just visit Visual, the hollow suites. of the hollow the suites. Hollow girls. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of Riker, so there's that one. I don't know if it was first season or second season, but where Riker, you know, goes and sees a girl, um, in some kind of a bar scene or whatever jazz it was, bar, yeah. jazz bar kind of thing. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Now that kind of thing, I could see that being hollow deck stuff. Right. Um, how she could actually be physical enough for him to feel her, I mean, for him to feel her as they're dancing. Mm, not quite sure about that, but the idea that it's like, in, you know, in a room, right. Um, you know, not, not a NASA hangar or something, but like a small, normal sized room. I could see that, you know, being a holodeck kind of setting that would make sense. Right. As opposed to right. some of the stuff you were, you were describing. Yeah, exactly. People going in two different places. And, and, you know, that would have value. That would be have value. Right. And I could even buy the being able to eat while you're in there, being able to feel something. If if they've really mastered replicator technology where Mm -hmm. they could 
They can just replicate whatever you're supposed to be feeling there uh-huh. or eating or eating. whatever. Yeah. Then then I'm okay. So it's like, okay, so they're replicating it and then they're as soon as you turn the corner, they're getting rid of that and, and replicating the next room or whatever like that. Right. Uh, th- that I can kind of believe in that you would be able to touch it and it would actually have substance and not just be hard light or however they try to explain it later. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's all mumbo jumbo and it's not real. So, <laughs> But you want it to be plausible. Just, just got to go with it. Exactly. And that The plausibility of the holodeck was always a bit of a challenge. But right. you just have to accept it at some point and enjoy the ride. Yeah, yeah, I do find it funny that it's one of the elements from the Star Trek animated series that was kind of silly. You know, having this recreation room that could basically do what we we know of the, as the holodeck now. But in that episode, it was kind of like this fun little thing that uh, you know was there, but nobody ever we never saw it before. Mm-hmm. And then now, then it became a mainstay, and everybody's taking it serious. Where nothing else from the animated series was ever really taken all that serious, right? A- after the fact. Anyways, uh, that's all my comments for this issue. Okay, well, let's wrap up with issue number fifty-three. You're dead, Jim. Exactly. That is the title. You're dead, Jim. August nineteen eighty-eight. All the same people. In production. The cover features Kirk unconscious with a bloody chest wound while McCoy and Spock are at his side. A ghostly representation of Kirk's soul is floating above them. Text in the upper left hand says, You're dead, Jim. And it kind of looks like it's maybe against some kind of stony kind of uh, background. Final entry. Kirk is in his quarters, bleeding out. He can't believe Bearclaw just stabbed him, but thinks Bearclaw sealing the door to his quarters to be good planning, hallmark of a good officer. After Kirk realizes he can't get out into the hallway to get help, he then attempts to get to his computer terminal in his quarters, but collapses before he can signal for help. In his near-death delirium, Captain Kirk is sailing the HMS Enterprise through space. He is at the tall ship's wheel and smiling. He is truly happy. Kirk turns the wooden ship. He is sailing towards an oncoming vessel. It's the USS Enterprise, and Kirk uses his spotting scope to look into that space vessel's bridge. He sees a fellow rover whom he wishes to spin a laughing yarn with. That fellow rover is Spock. Spock stops his conversation with Sulu, as if someone has tapped him on his shoulder. Jim, is all Spock can say. Spock snaps out of his reverie and orders O'Hara to call Dr. McCoy to the captain's quarters immediately. Spock arrives with McCoy and a medical team already there, but stymied by the captain's sealed door. McCoy calls security to blast it open, but sensing the urgency, Spock uses all his strength and concentration to force the door open. They find Kirk in a pool of his own blood and get him to sickbay at an Olympian's pace. On the way, members of the crew see the captain is nearly unconscious with a blood-soaked tunic on. They recognize he is bleeding out. Word spreads fast. 
Kirk thinks he sees his son David, giving him words of encouragement. Sherwood runs to Bearclaw's quarters to tell him the news. All Bearclaw can tell his girlfriend is to say, Good riddance, and then closes his door. Kirk is in sickbay, and in his delirium, Bearclaw's attack is reenacted, but this time Kirk is able to withstand the knife attack and throw Bearclaw against a wall. Kirk says he cares for all of his crew, but when it comes to it, with Bearclaw, he had doubt. That doubt makes Bearclaw grow to huge proportions, and with a maniacal smile on his face, he looms over the doubtful captain. Kirk says, Bones, help! McCoy is feverishly working to clear Kirk's lungs and repair the internal damage as Spock watches on. On the bridge, Sulu, Chekhov, and Ahura discuss the captain's condition. Ahura says the captain will pull through. He has always been there for us. Always. She remembers back to a time when the captain took the time to help her overcome her doubts about staying in Starfleet. Meanwhile, in sickbay, Kirk is standing in a clean uniform saying McCoy is a miracle worker, and has healed him up just fine. Kirk takes a walkabout on the ship, but no one is responding to him when he tells them he's okay. Kirk looks out a window into space and sees his dead brother Sam sitting at a table and beckoning Jim to join him. Kirk can't get past the window to join his older brother. Sam says, maybe it's not your time yet. Join me when you're ready. I have plenty of time. In engineering, Scotty thinks about how Spock died in this room that he's currently standing in. There will be no Vulcan miracles to bring back the captain if he dies. Scotty recalls a time on Alderhan when he and the captain got wasted drunk. Good times. On Kirk's walkabout, he is confronted by the former captain of the Enterprise, Chris Pike who warns Kirk to get out of Starfleet before it's too late, before Kirk is damaged for life as he was. Pike suddenly transforms into the physical shell of a man we saw in the Taws episode Menagerie, and then into a skeleton. Kirk takes off running. Kirk runs to the shuttle hangar, where the doors are open, and Kirk now sees his son David at the floating table in space with his brother Sam. They beckon Kirk to join them. He almost does, except that Spock calls to him, saying it's time to return now. Spock has actually started mind-melding with the captain. Kirk decides to return to his responsibilities, and eventually wakes up with McCoy and Spock at his side. The first thing Kirk says is, Pike. Spock asks if he means, as in Captain Pike? The captain says angrily, no. As in I want Bearclaw's head on a pike. To be continued, the trial of Bearclaw. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah. So when I got to the end of this, it was like, what trial? He's guilty. You know, throw him away and throw away the key. Right. But then you start thinking, uh, was he still wigged out from the whole... Uh, illusion and hell thing? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's a hard. <laughs> that's a hard one to uh, well I... say. Oh, okay. Well, 
Well, know. that's okay. Uh, well, so so much stuff, crazy stuff happened, I guess. There was a lot of crazy stuff. But what are they going to do? I mean, okay, so the next issue is going to be they're going to have to come to some resolution with Bearclaw murdering or trying attempted murder. Maybe. So what what do what maybe? No. Maybe not. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. Okay, so they got to deal with it in some way. Uh, either forgiveness is going to be given, or Bearclaw is a murderer, and he justifiably goes, you know, to prison forever. Right. Or they are on a ship, aren't they? Just shoot him out. Just exactly. <laughs> okay, you laugh, yeah. but but let me call it to your attention. I've been uh, listening to the audiobook of the original script for A City on the Edge of Forever. Okay. And I know we, we not that long ago, well, actually, by now, maybe it's been a year, year and a half, two years, we went ahead and did the multi-part IDW comic. Right. Which was very cool because it, it again, purported to bring the original script to life in the, in the pages of this multi-issue comic. And it was very cool to see it. Um, uh, different, but also the same in a lot of ways as the actual TV show that was filmed. But I'm, I'm sure everybody listening to this is probably well aware there was huge amounts of controversy because the original Harlan Ellison teleplay was revised and revised and revised by Harlan Ellison himself. And then, after he was sick of doing all the revisions and not getting paid for it, uh, basically, people in the staff of of the Star Trek production went ahead and started uh, modifying the script too. And eventually, what we ended up with was what was filmed, which was an excellent episode. No two ways about it. Um. Anyway, but the main point is, in that original original script, which I can kind of see why they didn't want to go with it, certain parts of it, they actually had that crewman. Uh, that was basically selling the uh, the sonic drugs. Right. What was his name? Um, I forgot his name. It began with a B. But anyway, that guy at the beginning of the script does end up killing the lieutenant that was basically the addicted guy because he said he was going to go and tell, tell Kirk everything. And for those of you that are not familiar with the script, you probably not don't know what the hell I'm talking about right now. But let me try to, be, let me try to wrap this up. He does end up killing him. He, uh, this guy kills the, this other lieutenant in the hallway outside of his quarters, and he's caught. And rather than him making a break for it and going down to the planet and eventually getting out through the uh, Guardian of Forever, um, he's caught. And basically put under Marshall, you know, uh, he, he's tried. And Kirk, as the captain on a five-year mission out in the middle of nowhere, long time until we get back to civilization decides you're a murderer and we are going to kill you. We're, we're going to execute you. And we're going to find an uninhabited planet on which to do it in. And so they did find a planet away from everybody and on a nameless planet, that's where they were going to kill this guy, this murderer, who was a member of the crew. And that's where they found the Guardian of Forever. So it was a bit different, but the main point is, underscore, murderer, firing squad, and it was like, eh, no problem, that's what they do. And it's like, that is so not Star Trek. You don't just kill people like that. 
But that's what the script said. And, you know, you think about it a bit. If you're really on a five-year mission or whatever and things go kind of wacko, then what do you do with somebody that, that murders? Throw them in the brig forever? Anyway. Right. Well, I mean, that's what they had to – in Voyager, They that's that was the – Exactly. They had the, to go with that same thing. Good precedent. Now, in the comic book, he didn't get caught. And no. Caught. It was different. They weren't going – I thought he just kind of escaped. He escaped. Yeah. And, so, and then he got to the Guardian and he just jumped in. Yeah, they caught him on the planet, but they weren't going to execute him. Not at all. Uh, I mean, they never even got to the point where they could have they could have a trial of him. Hmm. He killed the other lieutenant. He was able to escape down to the planet, which they had gone to already, and he was going to try to get away on the planet. Right. Uh, wow. And then they caught him. And then they found the Guardians of Forever, which were actually four guys that look ghostly, kingly kind of guys or something, real old guys, Gandalf kind of guys. <laughs> and, uh, and he got away and he jumped through. Beckwith, that was the name, Beckwith. So I didn't know that they came out with an audiobook of the original script. Yes, yes. And the thing is, the first half of the book, or the audiobook, is essentially Harlan Ellison telling his side of the story. Huh. So it's like, it kind of goes on kind of long, but um, yeah, so the first half is that, and then they do the teleplay. And the teleplay has definite differences with uh, the comic book. Right, because if they did that many versions, then yeah. then who knows which one the, the comic book people used. Well, they did not – if the audiobook is correct, they did not use the originally submitted script. And wow, yeah. Anyway, I don't. I don't want to belabor the point on this pot. The main thing I just want to say is, at least in this script, there is precedent for firing squad. <laughs> and if anybody deserves it, it's Bearclaw. Well, I'm glad they don't, or I hope they don't go that route. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be surprised if they do. They're not. They're not. I mean, like you say, you know, so in the Voyager one, that guy was like a serial killer, right? Right, yeah. He killed people and shoved them into the walls, I thought, or something like that. Something like that. And, uh, and, and they just put him in the brig forever, right? Until they got home? Uh, they put him or in that the brig, the and, then, and then when they – one of the season finales where they, the, the Kazon or whoever took over the ship, he, right. he was the, actually the hero. The, the hero, the, right. He and the doctor or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I think he might have died, though. Sacrificed himself for the greater good so that they didn't have to keep him in the brig forever. Right. Which... But I did, I did like how in that one, Tuvok was the one that was like, you know, maybe we should just kill him because that's that's more humane. You know, the logical oh, one. Oh, I did, I did not remember that discussion. That would make sense that they would have such a discussion like that. Yeah, no, they did, because I think Tuvok was the one that was like, uh, it's not really humane to keep him locked up forever, because we're never going to get to a starbase to drop him off. Right. Well, at least not in their lifetime. Wasn't it supposed to be like 80 years or something to get home? Yeah, 80 originally. years. Yeah, and wh who's the actor that played that crazy guy, Brad Dorf? Oh, yeah. He's played so many good bad guys. Yeah. A uh, little bit of a tangent, but do you watch the... The Child's Play movies? Uh, no. Okay. Child. Oh, the the doll thing. Chucky ones, right? Chucky, right, right. I don't remember those. 
Yeah, he uh, he he was Chucky, right? In the first one, so he he was the guy that put his soul into the doll or whatever. Oh. But but in the last one, the the uh, I forgot what it's called, Curse of Chucky. Uh-huh. Um, he's actually in it again. They do some flashbacks of the pre-doll version of himself. And right. Man, he he plays the greatest, just creepy guy. Just yeah. Like, he, has those, <laughs> he has those eyes that you're just like, oh my goodness, this guy is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Between between Brad Dorif and the guy that played, um, we mentioned the guy that played uh, Scorpio was a Scorpio, the Scorpio killer on um, in the original Dirty Harry movie. Mm. Yeah, I don't know who that is. Well, he was also the guy that was the father in uh, Hellraiser. Oh, okay. Um, who well, also he... played Garrick? Well, the the guy who was the uncle played Garrick, wasn't it? Uh, uncle. I thought it was the father of the girl. Oh, that's right. And then they switch skins. Ooh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, he plays the father, and then Frank puts his skin on, and then he pretends to be the dad. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, ugh. Yeah. Anyway, but that guy, between him and Brad Dorif, they make the best bad guys. Crazy yeah. bad guys. They're good. Yeah. All right, back to this issue. Um, a lot of flashbacks, which obviously, you know, it does happen when someone passes away or is going to pass away. You You tend to think of all the the fun times you've had with him. So I enjoyed the, the horror one. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. That he uh, was able to talk her out of leaving. Right. But I didn't necessarily care for the uh, the checkoff one and the uh, Scotty one. No. Well, I, mean, I, I can't see <sighs> Kirk being that, that drunk. Well, I think it's kind of funny. Um, it's funny. I I kind of liked it, but yeah. I mean, the guys just you know, guys will be guys, you know. Now the whole Chekhov one that was really brief. That was just like the first time you met him. Kirk seemed like he was thirty feet tall or something. Right. Yeah, that was yeah, kind of the meh. the depiction of him was just like you know the jolly green giant. <laughs> exactly. Ho ho ho. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's. I just skipped that a lot of that stuff. Right. But but the checkoff one, I mean the the Scotty one, I thought was was funny. But it would have been better if it was like pre Enterprise Kirk, not necessarily oh. while he's captain. already captain, right? And they're at the uh, Alderaan Bar and Grill. Yes, Alderaan. Nice, nice <laughs> so was it spelled with the H in there and everything? No, no, it, the, he misspelled it, which I think he did on you know on another purpose. Reason is because it's now it says Alderhan. Yes. So. Yeah, when I first saw it, I thought it was Alderaan. I was like, Alderaan, isn't that Star Wars? <laughs> hmm. But, um, and then I really liked, I don't know why, but I I loved the, the David and um, uh, George scenes with, yeah. uh, come yeah. to the light, you know. Exactly I, right, right. I loved it. I thought that was so good. Yes. So the light was coming from the uh, candle that was on the table, right? Look at the uh, you know, look yeah, at yeah, look right, at the lights. Right. Look, look at the light of the candle. George was saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. When you always hear when you die, or you, not George, Sam. Go, Sam, Sam, right? Sorry, George is their dad, right? Right, right. Yeah, so come to the light, come to the light. You know, and you always hear that in like poltergeist and things right. like that. <laughs> right. That's how you cross over to the other side. Exactly. No, I thought it was good, and, yeah. and 
I liked seeing David again. Yeah, yeah. If I were brief. Right. So I got a question for you. Yes, sir. There is page five, I believe it is. Yes, page five. Where Spock is still running to Kirk's quarters, and then there's McCoy with the levitating uh, bed and stuff. Yeah, the creepy alien? Yeah. With, like, the blue baby blanket. I think that's a cape. That looks like a cape. <laughs> okay, so this, so in B, okay, so of course the main focus is going to be Spock, who is like practically horizontally is running so fast, and then McCoy mm-hmm. on the other hand, other side. But in the middle, on the ground, well, on the floor between them, is some alien-looking thing. Crew member? I mean, it kind of has a red, red outfit on. Right, but you can't really quite tell whether it's uh, like a duty uniform. But I'm sure right. he's a crewman. But okay, so he's got arms. He's got two arms, and he's got a torso that looks like a humanoid torso. The hands look kind of weird and yellow, like maybe mm-hmm. only with two mandibles or something, or two finger kind of things. Right. And then the head is some weird, like 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 yellow baldy kind of stuff. But then he's got some kind of a Hair? Is it hair? Uh, hair or a crest of some sort? Yeah, Something like that. And then the icing on the cake is, rather than legs, it looks like he's kind of got a snail bottom. So what's funny is that when I read this and saw that guy, yeah. I thought he was trying to work on getting the door open. You know, that he's not the same guys in the next panel that are trying to open the door, but I thought he was working on a panel or something. But now that you're oh. look at it again... He's not, because he's in the middle of the pathway. So he's yeah, like, he doesn't look like he's at the door. Leaning, I thought he was sitting on his knees, working on a panel to get the door open. But uh, no, I think you're right. I think he has like a snake body or something. Yeah, with his cape on. With a cape. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but you've got a good point. If that, if those are Kirk's quarters, his door. Hmm. Anyway, it's the oddest darn thing. Very strange. Yeah, I don't know where um, the artist came up with that inspiration for that particular drawing of a character, but it is quite alien. Right. Gordon Purcell, yeah. Gordon, you got some creativity there. I didn't know that there was a a legless version of these duty uniforms. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. With a cape. Nice accessory. Nice accessory. A powder blue cape fascinating you know what this issue might have came out the same time as issue one of the next generation which had the the barclays or bear claws ah! in there the, Bi- uh, the bickley's the bickley's the bickley's yeah yeah and their cape so this was the month of star trek capes maybe oh uh, maybe oh they're my like, god we're gonna phase these capes into star it's trek. so weird and it didn't go over well and they're like now nah, we're taking it out so weird so weird <laughs> Good point, good point. All right, uh, let's see. What else you got on this issue? Well, I guess the only thing I have to say is that uh, Bearclaw seems to have absolutely no remorse for anything. No, yeah, when he's told, he's like, yeah, good riddance. Good riddance. It's like, okay, you said, oh, I was sleeping. I mean, is he really literally? I mean, is that, I mean, I when I first heard him say that, it sounds like bullshit. I mean, sorry. <laughs> Woo! BS. Sounds like BS. 
It's like, oh, oh, now, now you're trying to paint some kind of a, uh, a story about how you didn't have anything to do with it because you were sleeping alone in your quarters. But was he maybe? Was he sleeping or was, was he, he like like sleepwalking or something when he killed Kirk? I, I'm just maybe, I, don't I, know. I, I don't maybe I'm just looking forward to the next or, issue how they're going to make a whole good riddance. So that doesn't he did necessarily mean like he was shocked. Yeah, good point. I don't know. I'm just kind of wondering how they're going to stretch out a whole issue on this if it looks like it's, it's an open and shut case. I don't know. Oh, I, I bet it's more than one issue, Ken. Oh, it, God, it, really? It'll be a two or three parter. Oh, man. Okay. There's only three three issues left of the whole series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, speaking of weird crew members, there on page 15, did you see uh, Ensign Koala Boy? Oh, let me find Ensign Koala Boy. Oh, 15, 15, 15. Yeah. And by the way, this is the real, as in the number on the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Of the, the page. The actual page number. Okay. Uh, koala. Oh my god, yes. Look at him. He's so cute. He looks a little bit like, um, not koala necessarily. Uh, he looks like... Teddy Ruxpin? Maybe. He just looks like a cute little fella. Right next to Kirk. Yeah, I thought I saw the, the Spaniel-looking crew member at some point as well. Mm-hmm. But now I'm having trouble finding him. Oh, it look. Oh, oh my God. Okay, so and you, of course, you're seeing the, uh, you know, the mutant, a guy, uh, the mutant Klingon guy, all all white, right? And right, on that same doll. page, he's got a doll. He's got a Klingon mm-hmm. doll. Okay, so you're right. So they're making him seem like a kid. Yeah, he's he's Conum's and Bryce's kid. <clears throat> That's disturbing. If he really is an adult. Right, but and he just a mentally a, a kid. Child, so it's not that bad. They're just uh, his guardians. Uh. Yeah, could you see getting past a certain point in life where it's like, you know, I'm kind of sick of having the uh, the pasty faced freak here around. Oh, Ken, that's horrible. Well, I'm sorry. I mean, it's very nice of them taking responsibility over this guy, but come on. <laughs> All right. What? I'm sorry. Okay, fine. Sorry. I'm sorry, but come on. It's like, I don't know. Yeah, it's a big responsibility for That's a, a big couple. responsibility. And it's bad but, enough that you're Starfleet officers on a ship and you're going to get married, but it's like, ugh. Well, he is a, a I mean, he's, he, he might be the first, not only is he the first Klingon officer, yeah. but he's the first officer to become an officer without ever going to Starfleet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Star Starfleet Academy. Yeah, yeah. You just yeah. Hey, I want to be a Starfleet Ping. officer. Ping! Ping! Yeah, officer. exactly. Get on the bridge now, mind you. You're an ensign, but still, right? Yeah, I well, agree. So was Harry Kim for like the whole the whole run of Voyager. Yeah, they should have really given him a promotion. Exactly. All right, Koala Boy was my last comment on that issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had one more than me. So, uh, yeah, that's it. All right. So next week we are, sniff, sniff, finishing off the DC Volume 1 run of Star Trek. End of an era. Okay. So do we have three issues or two? We have three issues. All right. Perfect. Yep. All right. 
So at the end of this issue, it did mention that there's going to be a, a person from Kirk's past will be in the next issue. So uh, any guess on who that person from the past is? Um... I'll give you a hint. He's not from the movies. So when I read these as a kid, I had absolutely no idea who this dude was. Oh, okay. So he's from the TV series. He's from the TV series. Uh, Finnegan. Damn, you're good. Is it? Yep. Ah! <laughs> uh, something just said Finnegan. Hmm. Um, so I don't remember why he shows back up. I mean, is he? he's not a lawyer or anything, is he? I don't think so. <laughs> he be, Finnegan why. becomes a lawyer. Okay, yeah, maybe. Just wondering why he would show up for the court marshal. marshal. I, I agree. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. But we'll find out next week. All right, all right. I'm looking forward to it. I'm not, I'm not looking forward to the end of the run. Well, I kind of am. You know, another check mark. You just want to check mark everything. What? No, I mean, I like the progress. I mean, don't you like when you... You know, you got this huge, huge stack of things ahead of you, and you start making progress. Right. Now, yes, you don't want to think too much about getting to the end, but it's nice checking those off. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. All right, then. So I guess uh, we'll wrap up and be back next week with uh, the the final three issues of – well, these will be the final three issues of, of Peter David we even have available at all. Oh, really? Yeah, because we've read all his, his IDW stuff already. Right. So. Okay, well. He needs to write some more. He does need to. Oh, incredibly prolific writer. Yeah, he's he's done like every sci-fi genre or franchise. Franchise, yeah. Um, Halo. Uh, Star Wars? I don't know if he ever did Star Wars. Okay. Um... Yeah. He did, uh, yeah, tons of other stuff. Yeah. Alienation. Man, Alienation. I loved, I loved his Alienation books. I, I would, I was just going all over every bookstore in the Dallas Fort Worth at Metroplex, just trying to find those Alienation novels to that continued cool. the series that got canceled way too early. Yeah, I did like that series. Yeah, it was good. It was a good all movie right, too. All right, Ken. Well, I'll talk to you next week, and we'll uh, we'll wrap it all up. Sounds good. Later, Donovan. See Thanks you. for joining us, everybody. See you next time on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.